Three, two, one. Hey there, I'm Chris Schwartz. And I'm Dustin Denham, and we're second-year medical students studying at the Rossani College of Medicine in Tampa, Florida. So if you go to our school, you've definitely heard of the Scholarly Concentrations Program. While in this program, they, our school I mean, will give you money to do research, but it's got to be something innovative, an endeavor of the scholarly sort. Yeah, so to get funded, you need to pitch a well-thought-out idea. Traditionally, you've got students like Dustin who pitch projects with titles like Pseudomonas aeruginosa bacteremia in neutropenic patients with hematologic malignancies. Who could say no to a title like that? So much science. And then you've got projects like this one, the one you're listening to right now. When I initially pitched the idea for a podcast, Bobby Collins asked, what is the need for something like this? What I'm about to read is my emailed response to that question, which I think gets down to the core of what this project is all about. So here it goes. I think medical education does a good job of sucking all the magic out of medicine. And it's a shame because our belief in that magic is what got us here. Let me explain. I don't mean to suggest the more lecture time should be devoted to turning lead into gold, or that because of Cadaver Lab I've had to put my search for the elixir of life on hold. What I mean is that most of us are here because we're enraptured by the possibilities of life. Some may never put it that way, but at the very least, they have a deep-seated curiosity about the inner workings of nature. And in our quest to satisfy that curiosity, we've left that world of rapture, that world that pulsed with our blood and breathed with our breath and found ourselves at the foot of a mountain of facts. Facts that are beyond any single individual's ability to survey. Facts that we're told, by their incidental accumulation, will one day form a meaningful whole. Facts that will someday help transform us into doctors. School turns our natural curiosity into a fetish for facts. School becomes a means to an end. But it doesn't have to be. I can't speak for all medical students, but I need my curiosity back. I need to be enraptured. I need some magic. I think all students who aspire to be in the healthcare field need to be reminded of what they're working towards. They need to be reminded by the people who came before them with their stories of triumph and struggle. They need to be reminded of the wonder these mountains of facts used to inspire with a storied exploration of how this knowledge came to be. They need to be reminded that these stories, these facts, all serve to bring one need into focus, the need to care for people. And that is the most important need of all. This podcast called The Alchemist is a show where we take what we've learned in medical school and explore the who, how, and why, the stories, in other words, behind the classes and facts. Roll the theme music. There's no more universal medical student experience than anatomy lab. Every medical student has gone through it. I still actually very vividly remember the first day of lab. This is my project mentor. Brooke Baldwin, MD, um, attending physician, chief of dermatology here at the James A. Haley VA Hospital. We had gone out and bought like scrubs. We were told to buy clothing that, you know, didn't mind getting messed up essentially forever. So we all went out, went out and bought scrubs and we had these white coats and we had this kind of 
pseudo doctor appearance to us. If anyone, yes, we totally looked the part. If anyone had seen us standing around in a group, they would have said, hey, there's a bunch of doctors over there. So we felt pretty spiffy. And uh, then I remember walking into kind of the anteroom of the cadaver lab, which was, there were some washing basins and it was very dark and kind of musty. And the washing basins were very archaic looking. Like they literally looked like some old like farmhouse tubs. And uh, told us to kind of wash up in there. And then we opened the door to the anatomy lab proper. And there was a very bright fluorescent type lighting uh, again, kind of cold. It had smelled weird. Kind of a medicinal. Yeah, like this, this, this like strange septic. Yes, sort. like medicinal, but not quite yeah. hospital sterile smell. The bodies were on these metal tables in bags that were zipped shut at the time, and we all kind of awkwardly gathered around our assigned table, and we didn't know each other very well as students either, mm-hmm. so. We were still in the getting to know you phase of our classmates, and now we've got this new person that we're getting to know. Um, But I I still remember unzipping the bag, and it was a huge zipper, so it was really loud, and you just heard these zippers all going throughout the room. We kind of peeled it back like a cocoon, and and there there was our person, our body. Every medical student goes through that experience. And when it happens, you can't help but ask, who is this person? How does this person, this body, get here? What am I doing here? Who dies so we can learn how to help others live? What makes a stranger make his or her final act one that's simultaneously anonymous yet intimate, grand yet small? Donating your body to science sounds like the noble end any good son of the Enlightenment would wish for a sloughed off mortal coil. But the people stiff on the steel before us aren't Voltaire or Jefferson. They're not even people anymore. They're the property of science, their tissue that's become a ward of the state. In death, they've decided to become stairs on which we climb upwards towards knowledge. Coming up, a woman nicknamed Shotgun tries to fulfill a dying wish. And we explore the black box that is the anatomical board. Stay with us. This brings us to Act 1, Act 1, Shotgun Lolly. The first question is, who is this person? How does someone decide to donate their body to science? Our journey today starts with someone who's not even in medicine. My name is Leslie Gibson, and I'm a recent USF graduate, currently unemployed, um, but I will be attending my master's degree in the fall. Wow, I messed that up already. (laughs) What's my official title? This is going to be a long interview. (laughs) Leslie is our best friend's girlfriend's best friend. And from this fleeting connection, a crazy coincidence occurred. To set the scene, it's Memorial Day weekend, and a bunch of us are at the James Joyce. For weeks, the question of how does someone decide to donate their body to science has been nagging us. How do you go about finding that person it's not like you can retroactively seek them out because that information is protected by law. So we have to find this person proactively. That is before they make it into our anatomy lab. 
So, we're sitting around the table when Leslie arrives. Pat had texted me like 20 minutes before you guys went to James Joyce and was like, want to come? And I was like, I just kind of like thought of it when you guys were talking about medical stuff. I was just like, oh, I have a medical question that's actually really relevant, so. And I'm one yingling deep when Leslie asks. How do you go about donating your body to science? So I blink a couple times, then I look at Dustin, who looks at Greg, who looks at Patrick, who looks at me with a look that says, don't look at me, I didn't put her up to this. And then Chris turns to Leslie and says, I know exactly how that works. Why do you ask? It turned out Leslie had a family friend who was trying to figure out how to donate her body to science. And through Leslie, she found us. Uh, I'll start with my legal name, Laura Ann Carney. And I've decided that Lolly Carney, my nickname, would like to donate her body to science. In anatomy lab, you'll notice that each dissection table has a laminated slip of paper that gives you basic identifying information on the donor. You know, sex, age, occupation, and what they died from. The bare minimum, the absolute basics. What they don't give you is their story. This is Lolly's. Would you prefer to be called uh, Mrs. Carney or Lolly? Laura or Lolly. Either one is fine. Lolly was born and raised in South Tampa and from an early age established herself as one of the area's top baseball players. The first year, it was, there were only two of us from Tampa Bay, uh, Dorley and myself were the only two. We won the World Series that year. That would be 1982. What Short stop. Oh, okay. I was good. So, so the coolest position possible? Yeah. I will say I was in the paper a lot. And they stuck me with the, the name, nickname, of Shotgun. Why was your nickname Shotgun? <laughs> because I had an arm like a rocket. After her glory days on the baseball diamond, Lolly went to a small little-known college founded by her great-grandfather. It's called Clemson. My grandfather, great-grandfather, founded Clemson University as the men's military college and Winthrop University is a women's teaching college. He was governor of South Carolina for many, many decades. Then he became senator from South Carolina and went to Washington. What was his name? Uh, well, Pitchfork Ben Tillman. On Wikipedia, there's this arresting black and white picture where he's staring off camera. He's blind in one eye, but it looks like he only needs one good one to see right through you. He, he, he was the first one to ever be censored on the Senate floor. He was very strong about his opinions, and he had a little, you know, peg for everybody on his pitchfork, you know? <laughs> They all had spaces, and he, he, you know, he 
at the time when he first started, he was, uh, you know, uh, uh, I guess you'd say racist, uh, red coat or whatever they were called, uh, Ku Klux Klan member. Um, but he was all about education. And he could not stand that the people in South Carolina would sign their name with an X because they couldn't read or write. And so Lolly goes to Clemson. She's pre-med and also getting her psychology degree. But after a time, a dissonance sets in. There's still gun racks in the dorms from when it was a military college. There's still separate bathrooms for blacks and whites. Mixed race couples get hollered at in the street. And pretty soon it comes to a head. I was working with a social worker at the time because I was pre-med and I was also psychology. And I couldn't believe what, what was going on just a mile down the road. This granddaughter had been abused by the grandfather for years. And, you know, they lived in this trailer here and the parents lived in this trailer here you know it was just it was all backwards so they didn't bring up something they didn't think was wrong they didn't know any different this had been going on since they were born they didn't know to say no and this was just a mile down the road from a huge, very wealthy Clemson University. And I found that every time I left the university, no matter what direction I drove, working with that social worker. And it was just, it was, it was too much. I could, I couldn't, I took care of a couple kids for a while and then I just couldn't do it anymore. I just, it was, it was beyond what I, you know, mentally could, could accept that you can't, you can't live very long in a state of dissonance. So you were frustrated by these injustices that seemed outside of your control that you weren't able to rectify? Is that about right? Absolutely. Absolutely. On every level. Summer rolls around, and after experiencing life's harsh realities, Lolly and her best friend Susan decide they need to get away. Lolly and Susan gas up the Volkswagen Rabbit put their fingers somewhere on the map and explore the west. We actually ran out of money in the Grand Tetons and stopped and got a job at a restaurant that was just a a night restaurant. 
So we had our days free. We'd go on the Snake River fishing or whitewater rafting. And, you know, I look back now and I think, you know, there aren't too many people that have ever done that. (laughs) And we used to do it on a daily basis. The Intrepid Travelers visit Yosemite, Half Moon, Yellowstone, venture up into Canada, and return to Clemson by summer's end. After Lolly graduates college, she moves out to California to pursue a career in medicine. I've worked for years in medicine, running residency programs and fellowships in internal medicine and pathology. I, I made my way up very high in healthcare administration. I worked for a biomedical um, genetic research lab. I worked at UC San Francisco. I worked at California Pacific Medical Center. And I, I ran those residency and fellowship programs on top of creating, I created a whole database to make it all electronic. So so so-and-so at the VA could see exactly what so-and-so at San Francisco General could see. So there was no paper pushing. For the University of California at San Francisco, Lolly creates a 10-point Likert scale for grading prospective medical residents. And for Lolly, UC San Fran gives her veto power over all applicants. And I had that veto right because we didn't, you know, it's hard enough to be a resident and it's hard enough to be one at UC San Francisco. But the, the, the biggest deal is you got to be a team. You got to be able to work together. And if you're not a team, thumbs down. Go somewhere else because we can't afford non-team players. The only way every one of you survive is if you're part of the team. Talali, team was an acronym that stood for Together Everyone Achieves More. And it was that attitude that led to one of the proudest moments of her life. When I left California Pacific, one of the graduations before I left, they gave me a exact copy of their certificate that says, I'm a doctorate of medicine and I've completed my residency and it's honorary, but it's, I mean, same signatures from the chair and, you know, et cetera. And that, that that was so beautiful. They honored me for being there for them through hell and high water. Unfortunately, later in Lolly's life, she felt that both her doctors and Florida's body donor program weren't on her T-E-A-M. Lolly was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and clinical depression in her early 20s, and while in California sought treatment, she went through a bout of electroconvulsive therapy and eventually settled on three decades of oral medication. Now, they seem to want to put me in a category of well, she must drink. No, I'm pay- I'm paying. I'm uh, what I call I'm paying the piper. You can't take this poison that I've been taking for twenty 
some odd years or 30 years now and not it is all it all goes through the liver so the liver has taken a beating I didn't expect to live to be 80 I also didn't expect my primary care doctor would not get it when I came in with my feet swollen the size of my stomach. You know, I literally, my knees were, I couldn't bend them, they were so swollen. The fluid build up, my stomach out to here, where I had to go in and get a paracentesis, which was incredibly painful. And it took me going to the hospital myself and having another doctor diagnose me. But that's, that's not until I've got permanent neuro neuropathy in this leg. Those nerves aren't gonna come back. Um, you know, the fluid's still building. Um, I, you know, I'm very unstable. You know, I have to be very careful about holding on. I think some of this can, could have been prevented had she known more, but she didn't know. We should say that it, it was around this time when Lolly developed cancer which metastasized. Her latest diagnosis brings us to our original question. Why have you decided to donate your body to science? Like what has factored into that decision? Because I've dedicated my life to science, both in psychology and medicine, in ways help train the best of the best doctors that are out there. And I want my body to mean something when I die, to serve some purpose other than just being buried six feet under in the dirt. I, I want my body to be a teaching tool for students, for residents, for fellows, for doctors. And again, there's nothing like having the real thing in your hand. There's no simulation that, that can match it. That's what I'm hoping is it will make better primary care doctors, it will make, make better, you know, GI doctors, it will make better neurologists. Since efficiency was such a large part of Lolly's career, we decided to ask her what she thought of the body donation process in the state of Florida. That brings me to the topic of donating my body. I know if I can, I, I didn't realize it was going to be as difficult as it is and cost as much as it, it's going to cost up front. At one point, I believed years ago that every medical school would welcome a donation of a body because there's nothing more important when you're learning it's it's like anatomy when I was learning anatomy 
I needed to see the knee and the ligaments and, you know, or looking at the brain. I needed to see where those holes were that all these nerves come out of. You can't learn that by looking at a book. You, you know, and I know they've got 3D images and whatever. It's still not the same as holding a brain in your hand and feeling the tissue. Lolly called the University of Florida to start the body donation process. The representative at UF referred her to the University of Central Florida because, since they too have a body donor program, it would be cheaper for her body to be transported to Orlando versus Gainesville. And when Lolly asked how much this would cost, they told her that she would have to pay up front for the preliminary embalming and transportation, which would cost between $1,000 to $2,000. That blew me away because I can just go get cremated for 800 you know. So that, that having to pay that upfront cost is huge. My mother's retired and living on her Social Security. I'm living on disability. We don't have spare money. Lolly was also struck by the lack of coordination between the anatomical board, the funeral homes, and the donor. They and and they told me they would send me uh, addresses of some funeral homes that they thought were within reason, and I've not heard back, and it's been a week. So I'm like, what's going on? You know, you sent me your information, but you didn't send me information on any funeral homes you knew in Tampa that were reasonable. So am I supposed to go through the, the whole phone book and spend hours pricing the whole Im- special embalming and transportation and figure out who's the cheapest excuse me i got better things to do than that i'm dying and it it it, it's very frustrating to know that the system is working where you pay up front whether you have it or not or you can't donate your body why are you still pursuing body donation if the if there are so many bureaucratic hurdles to jump through or hoops to jump through? The time may come where I say, forget it. I'm not there yet. I still really believe and have all my life, this is what I want. I know what I want to do. I know what my intentions are, but I may get to the point where this bureaucratic nightmare is going to be more than I can take. I've got doctors wanting me to do this test, that test, this test, blood drawn every week. You know, I'm still bruised from you know the IVs from the last hospitalization and... Uh, my electrolytes are all over the place and you know that's a stroke or a heart attack waiting to happen so I I don't I don't know that I'm going to be here tomorrow mm-hmm. to, to do any more of this 
And I think that is a crime when I'm trying to do something to give back to the, the, the life that I've lived and believed in and donated all of myself to. If you could somehow, if you could say anything to the the medical students, the incoming first year medical students that would be, you know, in a few years down the road or whatever, be uh, working on your body, on your donation, uh, what words would you have to say to them about what what you think they should take away from the experience? Very good question. I think what I would have to say is thank you to both of you for doing this kind of research. Fortunately, you know, Leslie knew me through her mom and, you know, got in touch. That probably, you know, that could have never happened. What I would like them to take away is a sense of how curious the body is. Be very meticulous. Don't overlook anything. Don't overlook an eyelid. Don't overlook an ear. Don't overlook anything. Because that may be the next cure for breast cancer. Maybe the next cure for the allele for schizophrenia. Don't, don't take any part of the the human body for granted i don't care if it's your nasal cavity you know there are plenty of people out there that that suffer from migraine sinus headaches that would love some relief or neuropathy that would love some relief so don't don't take any piece of tissue any part of the human body for granted i really only glanced at those laminated slips of paper on the dissecting tables it's crazy that you can relegate someone's life to four pieces of information yeah each each of those people is more than the sum of that slip they were people with lives as rich as lollies and their last act was to help us become the best doctor we could possibly be This brings us to Act 2, Act 2, The Anatomical Board. When we talked to Lolly, we really didn't know um, much about the Anatomical Board of the state of Florida. And when we tried to find out more, the Anatomical Board wasn't very cooperative. Your, your ti- the timing of this is really kind of... Terrible. That's the word he's looking for. It turned out I wasn't the only person trying to get in contact with the Anatomical Board. A story came out in the New York Times recently about how dozens of bodies donated to NYU were improperly disposed of. 
donors rich and poor, unknown and famous, ended up in mass graves on an island off of the Bronx. After the story broke, news outlets began reaching out to state anatomical boards all over the U.S., and this included Florida's. When we started contacting the Florida schools, we were under the impression that we would be extended some sort of professional courtesy because we were, after all, students of medicine. Yeah, that wasn't true. Turns out, they'll only talk to journalists. So, we got in touch with UF's Media and Relations Department, and that's what we became. Uh, my name is Dr. William Dunn. I'm a physician as a professor, Department of Anatomy and Cell Biology in the College of Medicine. I am also the Executive Director of the Anatomical Board here at the University of Florida. The Anatomical Board, it's, we're really a state organization, okay, we're governed by, the, we're basically controlled by the state, although we are basically um, housed in universities. Our responsibility is basically to receive, prepare, store, and then distribute body donations, the human cadavers. All right, so let's walk through this process. How do they receive cadavers? Okay, so in the state of Florida, there are three institutions that receive donated bodies. University of Miami, University of Central Florida, and University of Florida. Basically, there's two ways of donating a body to the anatomical board. First way, you can pre-register as a body donor, sort of like registering as an organ donor, or the next of kin can donate the body of a family member after death. Next step, the donor signs a dedication form committing their body to anatomical study. Once the, the, the individual donor dies, um, the next of kin basically chooses the funeral director, chooses the, the mortuary. Okay, whoa, wait. Why is a funeral director even involved? Why does the body go straight to an anatomical preservation facility? That's an excellent question, Dust, and that's the source of Lolly's frustration, too. There is going to be a time where I'm going to say, you know, I'm not going to go through the, the phone book and call all these funeral homes to have them tell me $3,000, $4,000, $2,000, that sh $6,000. That should be their job. You know, I agree. And the states I looked into, like New York, Colorado, California, and Massachusetts, don't do this. But in Florida, donated bodies are pre-embalmed. And the reason given... Now, all the information that I'm talking about that we get from the medical examiner as well as the funeral home. Information such as body statistics, declaration of consent forms, ash requests, death certificate, burial transmit permit with cremation authorization. They take about a week to get get this information from them because it's a, it's a lot of paperwork. So the, they will end up, they will also pre-embalm the individuals and they will pre-embalm the individuals day one. As soon as they accept the individual, they will pre-embalm that individual, which will be, which is good for us because it's not good to have this individual, if we're going to use it for medical education, to be sitting around decaying for a week without him being embalmed. So we, the pre-embalming actually makes it better for us and easier for us. Okay, okay. So we still haven't gotten to the receive part. So the funeral homes embalm, and then the anatomical board embalms. Is there really a difference between the two? The short answer is not really. 
My name is uh, Dana Lucas, and I'm the laboratory manager here for the anatomical board. And like I said, I'm also a licensed funeral director in the state of Florida. Mortuaries will inject three gallons of formaldehyde arterially, while the anatomical board will inject a stronger three-gallon solution containing phenol, ethyl alcohol, and formaldehyde, which better preserves the cadaver for long-term use. Okay, so how long-term are we talking? Uh, once they're, once they're uh, preserved, uh, we store them in a refrigeration unit, and I like to keep them in the refrigeration unit at least a month, maybe two months before being distributed out to the schools. Whenever you're in cadaver lab, as a student, you notice certain cadavers have taken to the preservation process better. I was wondering yeah. as to why that is. There's a lot of reasons, or there's several, let's put it that way. There's a lot of reasons. Cause of death, types of medications they were on, treatment in the hospital, length of time between death and funeral home embalming. I mean, I see two reasons there. This is our anatomy professor. My name is Orhan Arslan. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Pathology and Cell Biology, and I teach mainly anatomy. One is primarily is the uh, presence of uh, vascular disease, prophovascular disease that sort of reduces the uh, amount of fixative distribution in the body in different parts of the organ, or the period that's supposed to be uh, post-fixation, how long is the, uh, the donor body left. Okay, that makes sense. So we received it, now we've stored it. Are there any cadavers that the anatomical board simply won't accept? The funeral director has to basically confirm certain aspects of the cadaver that we do not accept. We do not accept cadavers that have been, that are contagious, that have either died from sepsis, hepatitis, AIDS, or MRSA, right? We do not accept um, cadaver uh, donors that are over 150, I'm sorry, over 250 pounds, and that are over six feet, two inches. Even in death, they're still body shaming. Okay, so we received, we stored, and now we've transported the cadavers. How much does all of this cost? When we accept donors, the next of kin has to pay for the pre-embalming and the transport of the cadaver to one of our three sites. And that comes out to a ballpark of around $1,500 and up, depending upon what funeral home they're dealing with and how far they are away from the, the, site, the, the site, be it Gainesville, Central Florida, or Miami. The Anatomical Board does have a donor assistance fund, which provides the donor's family with $650 to help cover the funeral home costs. But even with that assistance, you can see how if you're someone like Lolly, body donation to the state anatomical board may not be a viable financial option. Yeah, so who pays for the anatomical board's embalming and their transportation to the schools? You, me, and the class of 2020. The financial support of the anatomical board comes from various service charges for the, the cadavers. Okay? And what, and so what are the service charges? The service charges... Uh, for for a single cadaver, it, it varies. Yeah, for a single cadaver, it's, it's around 2000 And this covers? Uh, the processing of the cadaver, all the paperwork, as well as the staff that, that we use to uh, prepare the cadaver and for shipping and such like that. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that the Anatomical Board has been asking the state for money every year for decades. 
They're not a for-profit institution. The amount they charge per cadaver is the smallest amount needed to fund their operation. So if it costs so much to donate your body to the anatomical board, um, why not just donate your body to a private company that will cover the entire cost? Well, the state says that it will give families peace of mind knowing that their loved one has remained in Florida. And in what way would they not remain in Florida? Uh, bodies donated to private companies can technically go anywhere. That means that different parts of you could end up in different states. Oh, okay, okay. So, I guess that makes sense. If you donate your body to the state of Florida, presumably they'll just give you the ashes back when they're done. Yeah. So, after anatomical study is complete, the board gives the ashes back to the family. If the family refuses the ashes, however, the state will dispose of them. Dispose of them where? Over the Gulf of Mexico. Over the Gulf of Mexico? How did how did they do that? Dude, that's literally verbatim from the website. Uh, okay, okay. So and 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 yeah, and so the mind sort of goes wild with the possibilities. All right, so okay, it's a it's a man, and presumably this man's name is Earl. His name is Earl, and he's definitely wearing overalls, no shirt, no shirt. It's Casual Friday. Okay, <laughs> he he rises early. He's you know, an early riser. He gets he gets the, he gets those overalls on, and okay, so now he's got to do the deed. Right? And there's. And there's three ways he could possibly do it. The first way, he's just got a bag. He's walking up to the coastline. He just wades into the surf. <laughs> just, he just wades out there with his damp bag, you know, and, and, and with full bash. Hopefully there aren't children swimming close Hopefully by. Hopefully not. The second way, he fires up that old prop plane. Ooh. And Fancy. flies yeah. over the gulf with just a can, a Folgers can. Of ashes, that he just bangs on the side, just out the window. Yeah, just he's, he's got to bang on the side to get the last few out. Yeah. You know, at the bottom, they get caked in there. Uh -huh. okay. I don't. What What is the third so, way? So I presumably just like a flat bottom boat. You know, from from uh, from a dock in his backyard, out behind the double wide, and just like flat bottom aluminum boat, two horsepower engine, put out. But what actually happens? Basically, charter a boat and take it out and, and spread the remains. This concludes part one of the CadaverCast. Uh, please join us for part two, where we'll hear physicians and students reflect on their anatomy lab experiences. Schwartz and Denim out. <laughs>